Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Nishant Srivasta. Thanks, Ray. This is the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Welcome to the episode 11 for season 11. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 10th of April, 2021, for release on the 28th of April. This episode is sponsored by The Id, The Ego, and The Super Ego. I'm Nishant Shivastav with my In The Hot Seat co-host, Drew Freeman. This episode, I get to explore the realm of public speaking with a lead host of Raven Delic podcast, Drew Freeman. So this is the point where I say, welcome, Drew. Thank you. It's it's nice to be welcome to the show. This is a very unique uh, episode this time because um, we, are, we have Drew sitting on the hot seat, basically uh, they are available for me to ask questions to and discuss things about public speaking, which he has a very good experience with. I have been I have been doing it for most of my life. This is great. I know that you actually started in pretty early with computers um, in your in your life. Like you, I think you started with Apple II, I guess, um, mm-hmm. which is a pretty old machine that for the most of our listeners, I guess they don't even know about it. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about like how you got into the the, the tech industry uh, and started working with computers and, and stuff. Uh, so we got two separate things there. The Apple II was basically, uh, my father was a techie and a gadget guy. And he knew that computers were beginning to interest me. So he got me an Apple II instead of the TRS-80, which I think would have resulted in a very different path for me. Uh, the Apple II, of course, being Apple's first really public computer offering. They had the Apple one, but that was more of a tech hobbyist thing. Um, but the thing was that I didn't directly go into tech. I wanted to go into theater because I didn't want to sit at a desk and and, and be quietly at a desk coding all the time. Eventually, I found out it paid more than waiting tables, and I basically started diverting my my concentration to getting jobs in the tech industry. You mentioned that you actually did start directly into the tech industry. So what domain were you actually um, initially working in? I think you did your studies in theoretical and something media-related stuff. Man, my studies were actually, well, I went, I was one of those people who could not decide on a major. I started in, in math and then went to computer science because that's what my parents were pushing me toward. Then I switched to theater and mass media. Um, I, I, I took a dip into uh, philosophy for a while, but that really didn't interest me very much. But theater and mass media were my primarily were my primary pushes um, when I was uh, in college in my undergraduate. That's great to hear because a lot of like these uh, engineers and developers in the tech industry. <laughs> They all actually start with a with a university degree in say computer science or something. And mm-hmm. a lot of these newcomers who are coming into the industry, they actually come from different domains. And for them to enter the tech industry is usually not so easy. So when they get to hear about people, people like you who have actually made it through by going through a different domain first and then getting into tech industry, I think it, it it's very empowering for them to think about this process. It, it, it helps to be very creative in your resume writing. Um, it, it's to, to basically, um, I'm not going to say embellish and I'm not going to say lie, but I am going to say 
be very creative in acknowledging what you've done and try to put it in its best light, which is something any, any resume writer will tell you. But even in my first positions, which admittedly were uh, undergraduate college IT, I was basically what's known as a labbie. Um, you basically write that up as managing hardware and managing user requests. And that's really what you've done. And that helps you take that first step to find another position into something that's going to more use your talents uh, in the direction you want to go. That's interesting, too, because, um, yeah, a lot of people, those who are actually trying to do all of this, like they they tend to try to find what are the different means, how would they can actually approach this. And I actually read about you that you identify yourself as a self-taught um, developer. Mm -hmm. And for those of us, um, or at least our listeners who don't know about this, Drew actually has learned a lot of languages uh, on his own. He's learned basic, Pascal, uh, Object Pascal, C, C++, Objective-C, and then eventually now he's, he's, he's dabbling in Swift and mostly writing code in Swift. So mm -hmm. how has that experience been like? Oh, uh, well, basic was what, you know, the, the Apple II came with a, a couple of books that basically were programming manuals for the Apple II. And basic is is a nice, simple language. It teaches you, uh, pre, you know, procedural language writing, and it teaches you simple loops and variables and all of those things. And eventually, you start getting some more of these concepts as they come. But it really was a question in most of these languages of being dragged into the realization that what I was using wasn't enough, and that I had to learn more. I, I remember one instance with my undergraduate professor, uh, the chair of the CS department, going in and asking him if he had any books on object-oriented programming. And he looked at me and he said, well, how much for my time? And I, I looked at him and I said, I, I beg your pardon? He says, well, how much for me to go look for a book that's out of uh, scope for what you're working on? And I said, well, isn't my tuition paying for your time? And he, he was one of those professors that really was not interested in cultivating CS majors. He was only interested in cultivating the people he felt were the, the creme de la creme in his department, which I think may be why I wound up in theater. <laughs> that's, that's super nice. I mean, that's that's super important also, the, the kind of... Um, the kind of like influence you get in the beginning of your um, getting into the tech industry part. If mm -hmm. that is good, then then it either works out pretty good. And if it does not work out, then also it usually works out because then people end up being self-taught and then they figure things out on their own. I, I think uh, one of the people it um, earlier in the season said, you just have a sense of stubbornness, which is, you know, if you, if you know what you're going to do, you just keep doing it and stick to it and, and don't let people get in your way. And in my case, I wanted to learn Object of Pascal um, uh, primarily because I didn't realize that Pascal could do some of the things that Object Pascal did. And I just found it absolutely fascinating. And I was like, I want to learn this. Do you think that the that the approach you had initially uh, of like learning these technologies, um, they have changed over a period of time, considering you have been like working with this for a very long time? Right. Mm -hmm. So now that you'd uh, see other people also jumping into learning, say, Swift on their own, is this is this become easier now or is it still the same kind of process? 
I think it's definitely become more difficult because you're learning a lot more than it used to be, you know, in in the world of basic, like I said, you wrote procedures and you wrote code. And if you had a whole, you know, the, the early Pascal, if you had a whole bunch of globals, that was fine. But now you've got design patterns and you've got architectural designs that basically say it's best to put your program together in this manner. And it's not so much that the languages themselves have become more complicated, but the libraries behind those languages. Uh, I remember when I was learning C++ on my own, I didn't know about the standard C++ library. And I had um, a girlfriend at the time who was taking computer programming come in and tell me that she needed to put numbers on a vector. And to me, having not learned the term vector by learning the standard C++ library, I kept saying, well, why do you want to put numbers on a point and a direction from the point? Because I didn't know the vocabulary. And that is the downside of learning on your own, is that you don't necessarily learn all the vocabulary or all the information that's important. Because if you have um, a professor, a teacher, or a a guide, or a good... um, tutorial, it will emphasize what is most important to track and keep in your mind. So keeping this in mind, would you actually recommend people to do to do this like through the self-taught process or would you recommend them to go through like finding a mentor, let's say, for example? I think the self-taught process has become a lot better than it used to be. I mean, we had the old phrase RTFM, which was read that fine manual. Um, And that really was it. I remember when I was studying Vax VMS in college, just to give you an idea really how old. And really, if you had a question about Vax VMS, you really studied the manual and that was it. The, 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 the concepts of, of Ray Wenderlich and the concepts of BNR and, and all of them now, Lydia and Udemy, that, that these things didn't exist. And these are people who are now teaching out of passion and writing out of passion saying, this is what I want to pass on. So you've really got more options for knowledge transfer than really just having to dig it up and find it on your own. You bring up these uh, platforms, uh, one of them being Ravendelic itself. Uh, we have this uh, also Udemy and, and there's like Coursera also. That's something that that's now I would like to steer our conversation towards uh, is is that they actually kind of act as the, as the platform where other instructors or uh, speakers do kind of public speaking. The thing is that up till now, most of the people, when we talk about public speaking, would talk about it in the sense of a meetup or a conference. Mm -hmm. But let's just say that over a period of time, this has changed a little bit. Uh, Things are becoming more online. Mm -hmm. And then you have these, um, this like mass mass, uh, reach based uh, platforms, um, which allow you to, to, to provide this information to more people at one, one point in time. But this, this is this is not considered as public speaking for some reason, but it should be because you are basically speaking to these uh, to to such a huge audience. So, what do you think? Like in 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 this particular instance, um, how would you like maybe share your thoughts around like how do you think would this act more as a public speaking platform? You're basically asking how is tutorial-like videos similar to public speaking? Yes, something like that. Okay. <laughs> That's a 
great question. And I promised myself I wasn't going to say that. Effectively, public speaking breaks down into performing papers or performing material without necessarily reading your text. And when you're teaching now, you've really got the concept of what do I want to convey and how do I wish to convey it? And this world of video lessons has made it very easy for us to all present this material. And I will admit that, you know, you have good public speakers and bad public speakers. And the same way you had good professors in college and really, really bad professors in college. And it all comes down to that sense of how do I present? How do I bring that knowledge across? Is it organized? Am I delivering it in a way that people want to listen to? I think there's a lot of similarity in public speaking for a camera versus public speaking for people. Let's dive deep, uh, deeper into this uh, particular topic of like public speaking, because now that you've mm-hmm. mentioned all these like small uh, levers that someone has to pull through, um, there's like from just from your experience, like how do you how do you um, basically come up with a certain topic to even start with a like a, a talk, a session that you are going to be presenting as a public speaker? I think there, there, there are two things that are essential. One of which is that it's a topic you know something about. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't present on something you don't know about. You can use the process of public speaking to learn a topic. But it is essential that by the time you are presenting on the topic, you've learned about it. Um, So I I know that there have been a few topics that I've gone into not necessarily knowing a lot about, but in the process of researching it, like you do any research paper, you learn more about it. The entire concept of a thesis is finding something that you have a an interest in, which is going to be my second part, but you have to research it to make sure you can talk about it. And that does bring me to the second thing, which is it has to be something you're enthusiastic about. Um, this came up several times during the season about how do you feel when you're presenting the same paper or same presentation seven, eight, 15, 25 times. And if you can't muster that enthusiasm, it's not worth necessarily still talking about. You need to move on. But the last thing, and this is more important for public speaking to an audience than public speaking for a video, is something that you know your audience is going to connect to. Let's say I'm going to be talking at a conference called Mac Hack, where people are basically hacking Apple technologies. I like that. Well, at that point, I'm not going to necessarily want to speak about copyright. I'm not going to want to speak about following publishing policies. I'm going to want to talk about some of the underhanded fun stuff that I've done. And that really kind of leads into the whole concept of how do you connect to your audience? You you need a topic that's going to suit them. Now, when you're doing it for video, you basically are opening a window saying, okay, audience, this is what I want to talk about. You come to me rather than in public speaking for an audience, you're coming to them. That is super uh, nice to know about because uh, I personally have also been uh, mostly giving talks uh, 
that are like that I connect to mostly, and I'm interested in that topic. So this is the first time I'm actually hearing from from someone saying that this is this is what your initial topic should come from, uh, because uh, in the industry, at least in 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 our Android community, people are coming up with same different things that they are coming up as a solving a problem also, which I think they connect to. But sometimes people are creating these generic talks. And that's when I think that's where you mentioned that if you are if you don't connect to it as many times, uh, like you're giving it uh, uh, the talk again, uh, then it doesn't make sense. And that's that's a solid advice. Um, but uh, because you mentioned this particular point here saying that when someone uh, those uh, when you give this talk, the audience needs to connect with it. This happens when you're actually giving uh, the, the talk or a session to mm -hmm. a live audience. Right. But when it's the video, you're basically talking to yourself. And that just changes the whole dynamics. Like, how, how do you suggest that be handled or at least um, thought through in a certain different way? So it, it helps the, the listeners who might be wanting to do the same. Uh, when you're talking to a camera, and, and I think it's, it's essentially you're not talking to yourself. You're talking to a camera yes. because there is still that point of where do I look? Because I have to think of the camera, and this happens in radio as well when you're talking with the microphone. You're not talking to yourself, you're talking to the microphone. And that microphone equals living creatures. Even if no one ever listens to it, you have to equate that you're talking to someone. You know, um, with the microphone. I remember working in radio when I just started out, you know, I was able to do the radio, do the radio, do the radio. And at one point I thought to myself on the other side of this radio microphone could be 30,000 listeners. And it, it stopped me for a second. It froze me up because in some ways talking to the camera can actually be more daunting because you don't realize how many people may view it. Now you may get a hundred viewers. That's still larger than the audience you will typically get at a conference, unless you happen to be on stage at WWDC doing the keynote or at Google IO doing a keynote, then you've got like the entire world of that community. And that's, that's gotta be terrifying. So um, I really don't see a lot of difference except for the fact that you're not going to get the feedback while you're doing it. That's true. That's uh, yeah. That's the feeling mostly. But now I'm gonna actually use this advice to to use the camera to the, use the microphone as someone whom I'm talking to. I'm I'm basically uh, using that. That's super interesting. I, I was very lucky that back around the the turn of the century or the turn of the millennia around 98 99, I was working in a field with collaborative software, and we were actually trying to do uh, video conferencing. Uh, to the desktop. And we had it. We always had one employee who, who would drive me nuts because when I would talk to her in video conferencing, she was always staring directly at me. And, you know, I'd be looking at the little picture of her. She'd be looking at me. And it took me a long time to realize that she was actually talking to the camera, which is something I eventually learned how to do. And it's it, it really makes it feel like you're being engaged by the person talking. I think so. That's a, that's a very good advice. But because you mentioned radio, I want to maybe pick your brain for that thing. Okay. How, how has that experience been? Like how, uh, first of all, how did you get into radio? Like basically, how did you actually end up doing that? And then secondly, like how was the full experience of, of just being on the radio itself? Oh my goodness. 
Radio is an accident. My college, my undergraduate, had two radio stations at the college. It had a 5,000-watt jazz and classical station, which uh, pretty much – uh, engineered a bunch of students who didn't necessarily like jazz or classical to learn Take Five by Dave Brubeck. Uh, and then it had this five-watt monaural station. And what that meant was if the engineer for our for our college had gas, it wouldn't reach the dormitories. But we loved it because it was free form. You could put on whatever you want. We had metal stations. We had progressive stations. We had an alternative rock station. And then there was me who had absolutely no taste whatsoever playing oldies. And that for the time was 60s and, and 50s and 60s music. We knew some of the disc jockeys from the local radio stations. They'd come in and they'd visit us. And a few of us actually would audition for jobs. And I managed to get a job at the local 25,000 watt urban pop station. For those of you who are decrepit and old like me. Um <laughs> But it was an experience because radio is live entertainment. It's like doing theater, just they don't look at you. Uh, and it's it's an interesting experience because it is, like I said, it's live. You're playing music, not necessarily that you like or don't like, and you have to be enthusiastic about everything you're playing. And that's just the way it goes. Sounds very interesting. Uh, like, I wish I would have got this uh, opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a fun opportunity, I guess. Uh, if people should get the opportunity, they should definitely try doing this. But um, while we are uh, talking about uh, this radio thing, um, what do you think um, there is a certain um, way that you have to maybe change a little bit when you are um, doing this radio um, like really jockey, let's say in this case, um, the, uh, were you like uh, you had to put emphasis on uh, not making enough mistakes or something like that? Like, what are these some some changes that maybe you you experienced during this process? Mistakes happen um, in live entertainment. Mistakes happen, and where the line of professionality comes from is going. Okay, a mistake happened. Move on. You just you, you can't stop in live entertainment. When we do this podcast, we're recorded so we can go back and we can clean up and, and it's, it's like a television show or like a paper. We can make drafts. We can revise it in live radio. You just keep going and you're enthusiastic. And you ask me, do you change your, your voice or anything? Depends on the type of radio show you're doing. I like I said, I worked three radio stations. I worked jazz classical i worked um free form and then i worked urban pop and let me tell you more than once it was the hot rock and flamethrowing q 102 <laughs> um because it was a gritty enthusiastic station and you 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 uh, developed a slightly more effective timber on your voice it's performance so so on radio, you you don't go prepared. I'm guessing you just like go with the flow and and then you just execute uh, uh, for that particular time. Well, for radio, there's not a whole lot that you need to necessarily prepare. You know, you know a bit about the music. You intro the name of the song. You know what the song is, um, and occasionally you read the news. 
there isn't a lot to prepare. You just get used to certain things that you say. Um, you learn on the job, so to speak, or you learn from listening to other disc jockeys. I bring this question up because like, I'm going to steer this back to the public speaking thing. Is that how do you think, because in public speaking, we have this opportunity of like preparing for a talk, preparing for a session. So based on your personal experience and also, also like um, over the period of time, you figured out maybe some recommendations, some suggestions of how people should approach preparing for their uh, talks and sessions? The biggest thing about preparing for the talk is remembering that it's more material. So this is requiring preparation. It's not like radio, you know, it's more like theater where in theater you're memorizing a script. I do not recommend for public speaking that you're memorizing a script. That's delivering a paper. Public speaking is talking openly about a topic. So in preparing, you want to practice. And I mean, practice over and over again, practice with friends, practice uh, with small groups. You want to be comfortable talking to people. And a lot of people say, I'm not comfortable talking to people. Now, there's a difference between being an introvert at a party and doing a job. When somebody asks you something at your job and you know the answer, you respond and you're able to talk about these things. Um, so talk to friends. You have friends that you can talk to. Just hear yourself talking to your friends and see that you are able to communicate. You can practice by talking to mirrors. You can practice by using different aids. But the most important thing is to prepare yourself by knowing your material. And when you know your material, you really want to make sure you're organized by bullet points because if you organize by bullet points, you don't need to have the full material. You just seem to, you just need to know I'm going to talk about this, which encompasses this, this, and this. I'm going to talk about this, which encompasses this, this, and this. And the smallest thing on that list, the smallest bullet should be something that's like, I'm going to talk about coroutines. Well, I know what a coroutine is. I can talk about the coroutine being this and how you use it, this and how you do and, and things not to do this. Already, I've dropped it into three small sizes. I, I refer to it as you know, it's a meal and it has courses and it has bites. B-I-T-E-S, not B-Y-T-E-S. <laughs> It's a, it's a very good analogy for this thing. Um, and and I, I want to add to this is that this is something that actually um, I hope the listeners uh, take this uh, advice uh, nicely and they, they kind of incorporate this because uh, a lot of like newcomers, at least in, in my circle and uh, those who come to me and they're asking like, Nishant, can you give me an idea around like, how does this work? And I'm like, you, do, you don't need to write the full script and you, you just solidify that point saying that, you just need those pointers, and that should drive the the the, the whole way that you're going to be presenting. It's a formula. It, it, it really is similar to doing my my formula that I learned in undergraduate in speech 101 was hello world, preview what you're going to talk about, summarize what you're going to talk about, and then reiterate what you talked about, and then exit zero. Um, a friend once said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them you told them. 
And if you break everything up into that 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 thing and each of your things you can break up into smaller versions of that thing, you've got yourself organized. Um, I often talk about my uh, my 101 speech teacher who loved impromptu speaking, which is speaking without any preparation or speaking with minimal preparation. And she basically said, you have seven minutes. Here's a quotation um, for the first four minutes. Figure out what you want to say. I want to know whether you agree or not and why. And then over that four minutes, you said, okay, here's whether I agree or not. Here's why one, two, and three. Here's an anecdote that involves it. And then for three minutes, you talked about it. And anybody who got an A or B in her class could basically crack a fortune cookie and talk for no reason. I feel like um, in this situation where you mentioned there's this impromptu setup, a lot of people would get like super nervous and they will panic mm-hmm. in, in, in trying to deliver this. And I, I want to uh, maybe tie this to the to the uh, to the public speaking aspect, too, because a lot of these uh, people, those who are prepared a lot, they practice. We, we went mm-hmm. through this, they practice, they come up with something that they're interested in. But now they have to go on to stage and yes. speak. And they go through the same process here. For any kind of performance, I always reference The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is a wonderful book, but the actual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the book, the book in the book, is described as being enclosed with large, friendly letters on the cover that say, Don't Panic. And I think that don't panic is the most important thing, because people go into public speaking feeling like they are going to just fail. And you can overcome nervousness very easily by, first of all, remembering you're not alone. The audience is, for the most part, on your side. I say for the most part because you may get one or two people who sit there being very superior and full of themselves and seeing how they want to deal with that. And there are ways to deal with them. But in the most part... The audience is on your side. And remember, if you're speaking at a conference, you're not the only speaker. You're part of an elite group, and you have been invited because of your knowledge on the material. And because you have that material, which I do say prepare. Now, yes, we've even talked to people this season who will write their write their speech on the plane on the way and i had been responsible uh, uh, irresponsible enough to write pieces of my speech in the last 15 minutes before i talk but in general don't procrastinate if you have your material together you're there you're still going to have nervous energy i um in uh, high school we did my Fair Lady, and I remember the actress who played Mrs. Pierce coming up to me going, I can't do this, I can't do this, I'm just so nervous. And I took her out back behind the high school and I said, scream. She says, what? <laughs> I said, scream. And she went, ah! And she looked at me, she says, I feel so much better. And she walked in and gave bang-up performance. I'm, I'm not saying scream, but find a way to get a release. Or even better, use that nervous energy to keep you enthused and driven on doing a speech. Nervous energy is energy. And energy doesn't get 
destroyed. It just gets rechanneled. And you are amazing at rechanneling energy. Heaven knows you convert food to movement every day. So you should know it. So let yourself be confident. You see, uh, you see this thing about live streaming. I have a feeling that in the next um, in-person conference that's going to happen, our listeners, one of them, like being speaker, goes, and this is like just before the talk, you can hear people screaming outside, then just calmly walking into the stage, and they're like, "Okay, let's begin the talk." I, I, <laughs> anything, so that, any, anything that discharges a lot of energy helps. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think, I mean. I I believe everyone uh, should figure out their version of channeling uh, channeling this uh, energy and the one that you mentioned I like it I don't know I'm just going to maybe attempt it one or two times <laughs> if, there's, if there's a possibility I'm definitely going to try it don't think for a second that you won't have butterflies or you won't be nervous I I've been speaking or been on stage in some form since I was 4 and I admit I haven't done theaters in about 15 years which is really horrible i have done public speaking i still get nervous nervous doesn't mean you're bad nervous doesn't mean you're not going to succeed nervous doesn't mean you're not going to talk nervous means you're alive and that's really great if you're bored going into a public speaking session rethink because if you're bored you're not enthusiastic about your material you're not enthusiastic about your presentation and your audience probably won't be either and that we call those people tenured professors <laughs> that's so true that's so true okay so that's a very good advice and uh, hopefully our listeners are going to use this uh, i think a lot of our uh, like previous episode guests have also kind of like um, reaffirmed the same idea that like you need to just go out there and 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 give it give it your best whatever you know about it uh but from here onwards i think maybe what because we have already um gone through the process of like people getting on to stage maybe what we do want to talk more about is that what would be the good way of presenting a talk because that's something that i actually get yes. a lot of questions from uh, other folks as well as i have the same questions mm-hmm. let's be very clear about this uh i think what people do is that they kind of figure out their own version of how they present a talk but obviously that's not the best considering there is there are certain tips maybe that you could impart that they that would help these um, uh, speakers even for myself that would be helpful okay so we've we've talked about the organization of the talk one of the things of course is visual aids they're there to help you out and i i always remind people your aids support you you don't support your aids which means please do not read every word on your visual aid keep them clear and concise if you're using lots of words there's stuff that should be spoken you you your visual aids are there for charts for animations for metaphors for humor so keep those clear and concise um how to actually give the speech remembering that your material is organized you are organized and you've memorized the bullet points not the speech itself physical is very important when you're giving a speech and i take it down to three things look breathe move um 
if you are on stage talking to people, remember, you're talking to people. You're not talking to the lights. You're not talking to the back wall. You're talking to people. It's one of the reasons that I say when you're talking on camera, you talk to the camera. Because inevitably, eye contact means you're talking to people. And it's hard because every now and then you'll look into the audience and people will be checking their phone. They'll be typing. They'll be yawning. If you're lucky, you'll find them sleeping. But if you find somebody who you make eye contact with, they might eye contact with you. If you see somebody nod, a professor of mine uh, in choir actually taught me, if you can affect one person, you've done your job. doesn't matter if you have 15 people in the audience, 100 people in the audience, 750,000 people on YouTube. It doesn't matter. One person, you've done your job. And that's why you're making eye contact. You're looking at people and you're trying to see, is somebody curious? Because the other advantage of having learned bullet points but not a speech is if you look at somebody and they have that look in their eye that says, I think I understand. You can stop yourself right there and say, now some of you may not necessarily be following what I'm saying. Let me go back and clarify something here. And that way you have really helped somebody who might have asked a question or been too shy to ask a question to get them to understand. So you're scanning your audience to see whether or not you need to make adjustments. Now, I talk about breathing and movement. If you do crafts, one of the things they always say is turn on music, because what will happen in crafts or if you're doing puzzle games or games in general is you forget to breathe. And if you forget to breathe, you get rushed, you get harried, you get off your game. Take your time. You're not rushing through it. Now, yes, some public speaking will say you have 15 minutes. And in 15 minutes, we will actually put cards up at 13 minutes saying you need to finish. And you're going to want to rush, 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 rush. Solution for that one is there's so much more to talk about. We, we say it every week on, on the on the podcast is there's so much more. And if you want to know more, check with me later. But uh, the last one I talk about is move. And if you've got uh, and I keep coming back to bullet points, moving is two things. One is you have hands. Don't be afraid to use them. Don't be afraid to throw them in front of you to express this is important. The other one is to move on stage. You don't want to necessarily have your feet cemented in granite on the stage. I'm a, I'm among a very small percentage of public speakers who always goes barefoot on stage, and it's because I want to feel the stage. I want to be able to feel myself move when I move on stage. I can list a small handful of other public speakers who do it. We're kind of regarded as bizarre looking or, or strange, but when you talk, if you ever get a chance to, to talk to somebody who is a, uh, a barefoot speaker on stage, ask them why, because they'll pretty much all say, I, or at least I think they'll say, it's to feel the stage, it's to feel grounded, and to be able to move. When do you move? Move on those bullet changes. If you're talking about a bullet and you're talking, so co-routines are da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now let's go talk about this. That's a move. And by doing that, by knowing your bullet points, by having that 
sense of physical motion, motion, and above all else, just being confident, knowing the fact that you've got your material, it just comes out. This is, uh, I mean, you mentioned some points that are very, uh, very unique because uh, let's let's talk about the last one that you just mentioned about the movement and also uh, relate this to the current situation where we're not doing in-person and staged uh, presentations. So how would you like maybe superimpose this concept onto this this video conferences, virtual conferences? I guess a bit of the hand movement is still there, but like, how would someone actually be able to use this uh, advice in current situation? One of the things that I find with recorded public speaking, when you find lessons or tutorials or the like, is... The, the the film term is mise-en-scene, which means the, the, the way the picture is set up. And you'll find that sometimes the head isn't in the right place, or maybe you want to see more of the body. And when you are preparing to talk about that, be alert to where how you fill the picture. Uh, for example, the way I am right now, you see my hands bubble up once in a while, but in general, they're below me. But you can see my whole head, you can see my shoulders, and I'm basically presenting to you. Um, So I think the way it translates is to have that rectangle represent what you want to have visible. And you may notice that every now and then I'm turning this way, I'm turning this way. A seat that pivots is nice. But then again, some people have green screens and they're more limited by that. But be aware of that rectangle because that rectangle is your stage. That is solid advice. Um, pretty much everyone needs to use this. I think it's it's also useful. Like, let's just say we are always in, in meetings, anyways. That's part of our public speaking now. <laughs> we are we are doing these calls at work, and uh, this also probably simplifies the way that people are presenting in their in their work calls. Let's say. Right, and it's a, it's a very good point that you're raising it up. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a solid point um, because we are now also talking about delivering the talk or session or talking to people uh, on camera or on the stage. Um, is there anything that you have in mind that basically would be a kind of a recommendation uh, in terms of delivering the talk? I have something that I, I always talk about when I'm talking about performance or speech And that is something that goes back in history all the way to the Greeks. Uh, Aristotle wrote a paper on the modes of persuasion. And that is sort of the guidebook as to what makes a speech catch the audience. And he breaks it up into three primary modes. He calls it ethos, logos, and pathos. And I find this essential. And a lot of people have heard the term pathos, but the other two never really as as much. Ethos is basically your street cred, your authority. And when you're speaking at a conference, you've pretty much got a built-in ethos because they basically said, we want this person to speak at this conference. Therefore, we have basically vetted them that they are there but ethos also involves the friendliness toward the talk you know i wouldn't invite balmer 
to come talk at an Apple conference because I don't expect him to have a friendliness toward the topic. So it's your street cred. It's effectively how valuable are you? If I if I we brought on people from the book Living by the Code this season, and just by merits of them being in the book gives them some credibility as to be worthy of talking. That's ethos. Logos is essential when you're writing your your talk because logos is logical. Does it fit together? Is what they're saying making sense? You have probably heard a talk where somebody's made you – know, politicians do it all the time. They'll give you a statistic, and that statistic just feels wrong. Happens all the time. Logos is making sure that your material is logical. Does it fit together? And pathos, of course, is the emotional hook. The worst thing you can do is have something that you're not passionate about. I've talked about the passion before, but pathos doesn't figure so much into a technical talk in as much as if you want to add humor. Humor at least lightens the mood so that people don't get bored. You want to have... Yeah. A ride with them. You want to say, this is the first thing that's interesting. There's something that's not as interesting. Here's something that's more interesting. You're basically taking them on an emotional ride to not weather them down. There's so much more to discuss, but we just don't have the time in the podcast. If you want to not only hear, but see the whole interview, we post that to the YouTube video in just a few weeks. Um, it was a pretty nice episode and I got to learn a lot. I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners also got to learn and have this nugget of knowledge now. Um, and we're done for this episode. So Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.